Psalm 96. Sing a new song to the Lord. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to Yahweh, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonderful works among all the peoples. For the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them exult. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. Next reading is from Acts 12, which is on page 1015. About that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church, and he healed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too, during the days of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. On the night before Herod was to bring him out for execution, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up. Then the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did so. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know that what took place through the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and immediately the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door in the gateway, and a servant named Rhonda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gateway. You're crazy, they told her, but she kept insisting that it was true. Then they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astounded. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he explained to them how the Lord has brought him out of prison. 
Report these things to James and the brothers, he said. Then he departed and went to a different place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been very angry with with Tyrannus and Sidonus. Together they presented themselves before him. They won over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, and through him they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. So on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a public address to them. The assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a god and not not of a man. At once the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God, and he became infected with worms and died. Then God's message flourished and multiplied. After they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul turned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who is called Mark, who is also called Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let us start in prayer. Lord God Almighty, the greatest honour, the greatest privilege, the greatest thing in this life is to be a Christian. May you just open our hearts and our minds and our souls to hear your word tonight, to live your word and to be transformed by your word. And all God's people said, Amen. Last year, a friend of mine told me this story about her Anglican pastor who played a trick on his congregation. The pastor out in Sydney's western suburbs wanted to see how his people would react to the threat of persecution. So one normal Sunday morning, in the middle of a service, He got one of the staff members to run into the church, come up to the front, grab the microphone and say, they're coming, they're they're coming for us. Now, you can imagine what would happen. The whole church didn't see it as a trick. They actually went into meltdown. People started crying. People started panicking. They didn't know whether to stay, to run, or, or to fight. Now, this mysterious they, the they that was coming, was never given a name. It could have been foreign invaders, it could have been a lynch mob, or it could have been a, a, a boy band. You know, the, the threat was there. And my friend said it didn't really matter who was coming after them, The threat felt real. It was just the fear of persecution. Now, we as Christians can understand that fear. Fear has always been around. But for God's people, fear has been around since the time of Moses in Egypt. And Jesus himself said that we will face persecution. That persecution will happen to us just as it happened to him. And we only have to turn on our TVs to see where, what persecution looks like in our time now. There's 
Christian girls in Nigeria who have been kidnapped and sold as sex slaves by the terrorist group Boko Haram. There's uh, Coptic Christians in orange jumpsuits being beheaded on the beaches of Libya. And closer to home, we're a little bit more uh, comfortable. We don't face those kind of persecutions, but it's still subtle, isn't it, persecution here? Politicians and uh, lobby groups and courts, they want churches removed from the public sphere. Schools and universities ridicule us because we believe God created the universe and not some giant cosmic party popper. And, in, and Christians in the land of the free, the United States, those guys, some of those guys over there, some of the Christians over there are losing their jobs because they want to talk about Jesus. And how about your own workplace? Do you have the opportunity to freely speak about your faith, to freely talk about Christianity, to freely talk about Jesus? I don't. I work at a newspaper full-time, and newspapers are supposed to be those kind of places where it's a bastion of democracy, where you should be able to speak about anything freely. But at my workplace, if you talk about Jesus, you're going to face ridicule or ostracism or possibly even lose your job. And we just heard a story about persecution at university. Same with myself. My oldest and greatest friend, he left me at university because I was a Christian. One of our guys at 9.45, he's a Christian. He's a wonderful husband and father of two, but he, and he loves a good laugh. But every time he goes to work, he doesn't find it a joke because he sits among three atheists, three staunch atheists, every Monday to Friday, and they ridicule him Monday to Friday because he loves Jesus. And I suspect all of us here, or most of us, have a story similar to that. But rather than us, rather than we live in fear, this passage tonight gives us enormous encouragement and enormous hope. Whether persecution is big or small, the message is the same. Fear not, trust Jesus, he is sovereign even in persecution. Fear not, trust Jesus, he is sovereign, even in persecution. And to help us explore this idea, we're going to look at our passage tonight under two main headings. Fear not, and then trust Jesus. So we're going to kick off with fear not. One man who knew firsthand what happens when good men face persecution by greater forces was Winston Churchill. In 1939, before he became British Prime Minister, Churchill realised that the world had a problem called Nazi Germany. The threat was so big and so real that Britain was outnumbered and outgunned and it would take five years of manufacturing to match the number of fighter planes and bombers that the enemy had. But no one was listening to Churchill And no matter how many speeches he gave and no many statistics he used, no one listened. People believed that after World War I, Germany was no threat and that common sense would prevail. So at one dinner party that year, Churchill used the story of an English tourist going to the Berlin Zoo who comes across a cage containing a lion 
and a lamb, a lion and a lamb. Quite remarkably, Churchill said, this lion and the lamb were living together in peace and harmony. A lion and a lamb, peace and harmony. It was a huge draw card for visitors, Churchill said. The English tourist then asked the zookeeper, how did you find such a lion? The lion isn't the hard thing, replied the zookeeper. It's the lamb. Every morning we need a new lamb. Churchill wisely knew that the lions of this world are real. That lions cannot live in peace, in harmony with the lambs of this world too long. Because lions are untrustworthy and their nature is to destroy. And so it is with powerful men of this world and the church. And that's where we find ourselves with our Bible passage tonight. Acts 12 sees the church in Jerusalem coming face to face with a lion called Herod Agrippa. It's roughly 10 years after the crucifixion of Jesus and Herod has come along and he wants to wipe out the church completely. And how does he do it? Well, let's pick up our Bibles and let's look at Acts 12 verses 1 to 3 together. Acts 12, 1-3. About that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too. How's he trying to wipe out the church? He's gone straight to the top, hasn't he? He's captured two of the three leading members of the church, who were three of Jesus' inner sanctum. There's James, who is beheaded, and then there's Peter, who is thrown into jail and will be executed. And we can guess that the next person about to go on the chopping block is James. Herod is the most powerful man in the entire region. He's king. He's got the might of Rome behind him. He's so powerful that in verse 20, the people of Tyre and Sidon in the far north pay homage to him out of fear. And this is not some one-off megalomania. His entire incestuous family has been trying to get rid of the church from the time of his grandfather, who was the Herod, who went out and killed all the babies in Bethlehem in a bid to kill Jesus. It's Herod's, this same Herod family, that went out and killed uh, John the Baptist by beheading him. And now when it comes to Herod Agrippa, he wants to be sovereign over the church. In fact, as we can see in verses 21 to 22, when he travels to Caesarea, Herod just doesn't want to rule the church. He's a fully certified nut job who has designs of being worshipped. He doesn't even blush when the people say, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. He, just like his creepy family, sees the church as a threat to his power. The church doesn't obey him like other men. So what does he do? He kills James. And in doing so, Herod is basically saying, who's next? 
Herod is a typical worldly leader. He uses fear. Worldly leaders love using fear, don't they? Especially if their power is threatened. Dictators use fear, communists use fear, governments use fear, and even democracies use fear. They threaten us with fines or court or arrest or jail time if we don't toe their line. And your boss, he or she uses fear, don't they? You have to do what they say or you'll lose your job. But imagine if your boss lost his or her power, if they were demoted below you tomorrow when you walked into work. What would happen if they shouted at you to make some coffee? I'm quite sure that you'd give them something all right and it wouldn't be coffee. So let's ask ourselves, why does Herod, the most powerful man in the land, want to crush the church? Why does he want to make Christians afraid? What threat does the church pose? It's because we Christians don't give our allegiances to men first and foremost, do we? We trust in Jesus and we trust in the gospel. Jesus is the ultimate authority over our lives. Jesus is sovereign over us. Jesus is God. And the way he reigns over us is so different to the way the worldly leaders reign. Jesus reigns through his word, the gospel. The gospel is powerful, eternal and trustworthy. When Jesus tells us, repent and your sins will be forgiven and you will get eternal life, we trust him. He's the one with all the power. He loves us and he's, he wants the very best for us. He uses his power for good. So in turn, we trust Jesus and we give our first and foremost allegiance to him. And you know what happens when people give their allegiance to Jesus? You know what happens when the gospel goes to work in communities and people? It's so powerful. It's so countercultural. It's so revolutionary that it just doesn't transform one man. It can transform nations. It changed pagan Rome into the Christian West that we've been enjoying for the last 1,700 years. Right at the moment, as we're sitting here tonight, communist China is being transformed by Christianity. And it will become, China will become one of the greatest nations, greatest populations of Christians history has ever seen. The gospel inspires people to build hospitals and schools, feed the poor, shelter the shelterless, support disadvantaged children and love the unlovable. We only have to look at the leper colonies that are set up across Nepal and India or the, or the lowest caste of India. No wonder men like Nero and Hitler and Lenin have been threatened by the power of the gospel. Two words. It works. And they can't control it. it. The gospel takes away the fear of men as the ultimate rulers of our lives and trust Jesus, Jesus to be the sovereign ruler of our lives. The gospel takes away the power of men and puts the lives of men where they should be, in the hands of the Lord. So let's ask ourselves, Peter's in prison. What crime did he commit? 
What is this fisherman accused of? Preaching. Preaching the gospel, living the gospel. He's been going from street to streets, house to house, telling people that through Jesus they can have eternal life. Why would anyone fear that? Why would anyone reject that? Peter's no terrorist, is he? Peter uses words and Herod uses fear. Peter brings life and Herod brings death. So what is Herod himself afraid of? What does he fear? What is he really trying to throw into prison? The gospel. He's really trying to lock up the gospel. And that's where the gun barrel of persecution is normally pointed, isn't it? It's about silencing the gospel. It's about stopping the gospel going out into the world and being heard by others. Peter doesn't have the power. The gospel has the power. So verse 4, Herod throws Peter into jail and orders four squads of four soldiers to guard him. And in verse 6, he doubles the normal amount of chains. Herod is trying to control the gospel. Can you, hear, can you hear God laughing? You were trying to stop my word going out in the world by a couple of spears and some handcuffs. Do you think that you can, if you kill my messenger, that you'll kill the message? So verses 7 to 11, God sends an angel of the Lord to wake up Peter and bust him out of jail. The heavenly king, Jesus, shows who's really in control. Now, let's be honest here. When Christians are thrown in jail, there normally won't be a miraculous escape. Peter's rescue is specific to this moment in time because God has a greater plan for him. What we need to understand here is that while persecution is horrible, What really we need to rejoice is that God's word can never be chained. It can never be controlled. It is an unstoppable power that goes out and saves millions and millions of lives, including yours. And that's the result here too, isn't it, from our passage tonight. Let's just have a quick look at verse 24. What happens after Peter and James' persecution? Verse 24. God's message flourished and multiplied. The gospel flourishes and multiplies. The gospel flourishes and multiplies because it's the very words of Jesus himself and Jesus fears no man. And friends, believe me, if Jesus fears no man, then either should we. Our friends, our families and our workmates will try to silence us when we live or speak the gospel, but fear not. Men don't have ultimate control over our lives. They don't have ultimate power over our lives. Only Jesus does. If you're ridiculed at work like our brother at 9.45 for being a Christian, fear not. Keep living the gospel in a way that it will shame your workmates. 
If you've got family members who mock your faith, and I know there are people here tonight, I've spoken to you about it, fear not. Be like Jesus and love them. Keep on preaching the gospel to them. They may not want to hear it, but they are hearing it. And if you cringe every time some smarty-pants atheist calls you naive, dumb, unscientific or uneducated for believing the gospel, fear not. Turn the other cheek. They are just men. Men who use fear. Men who are standing on a frozen lake that is crack, crack, cracking under their foot while we stand on the rock called Jesus. And what if you do? Don't strike back against our enemies and our persecutors. The gospel raises our hand in praise, not in anger. We love our, enemy, we love our enemies and live in peace with those who govern us. And sometimes that is hard. We all experience it time to time. We'll be ridiculed for believing in a God who was, who was raised from the dead. We'll be ridiculed for believing that sex is between a husband and a wife. We'll be ridiculed for believing that humanity is descended from the Garden of Eden rather than some sort of planet of the apes. If slings and arrows are whizzing over your head and you feel injured or tired, then fear not. You are running in the right direction and Christ is running in front of you. So how are we to handle persecution when it's bigger than us? When it's more than just a cynic on TV or somebody at work? What happens when fear is mixed with real power? And that brings us to our second heading, Trust Jesus. And we're going to look at this under two parts. And the first deals with facing our worst fear or our greatest fear. Look down at your Bibles again and let's read the first half of verse 6 because it's, it's a word that we may skip over but it's actually got a lot of power in it. Verse 6. On the night before Herod was to bring him out for execution, Peter, bound with two chains, was... What was he doing? Sleeping. Do you, do you marvel at Peter's faith here? If you were sitting in jail right now, somebody had rested you tonight and said tomorrow, you are going to be executed, what would you be doing? Writing emails? Eating your last supper? Updating Facebook? Twittering? Sleeping would have to be one of the last things that you'd actually do. You'd want to spend the last few hours of your life doing something. So why is Peter sleeping? Because he trusts Jesus. He trusts Jesus with his very life, even if it means he loses it. Let's look at our Bibles again. Flip with me to the left of your Bible to page 911. 911. And turn with me to Matthew 24, verse 9. Page 911. Matthew 24, verse 9. Does Jesus promise an easy life for his apostles and therefore his people? Matthew 24, 9. Then they will hand you over for persecution and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now, traditionally, that's no way to, to win friends and influence people, is it? And it's not the only mention of persecution in the Bible either. 
If you know your Bibles, James's death is predicted in Mark 10, verse 39, when James and his brother, uh, James and his brother ask Jesus if they can sit at his right and left hand in heaven. Do you remember what Jesus tells them? You will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with, which is a reference to being persecuted unto death. And that's exactly what happens here in Acts 12. James drinks the cup of persecution. James is beheaded. And I suspect as you hear that, especially if you're a visitor here tonight, you're shocked to hear that Jesus would say that. How can a loving God allow that? How can he be trusted with our lives if he allows his people to be persecuted until death? Doesn't he care? Please, please, please don't hear what Jesus is saying about persecution. It is not him who is sending people to their deaths. It's men. It's men who persecute, it's men who hate, it's men who kill, it's men who will kill God's people. These men think that they have the authority to do so, but the Bible makes it clear that one day they'll be answerable to a higher authority. Come judgment day, they will be answerable to Christ. And as Benny prayed tonight, who are they really persecuting? Acts 9, Saul, Saul, Why do you persecute me? They're persecuting Jesus. Now, some like Herod in verse 23 may be punished in this lifetime with a horrible death, but all men will eventually come before the Lord God Almighty. But still, you may be asking, how is that encouraging? Well, let's turn to the right, to Luke 12, verse 4. It's on page 958. Page 958. Luke 12, verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him, Jesus, who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Can you see why Jesus, sorry, can you see why Peter is sleeping so soundly? It's not because he trusts the Lord to perform some miracle and rescue him out of jail. It's because he trusts Jesus with his eternal salvation. If Peter is to die the next morning, his destiny is secure. He will be in heaven with Jesus. Peter trusts Jesus as his saviour. Nothing Herod can do will take away his eternal life, even if Herod kills the body. It's why we can take comfort in James's death as well. He trusted in Jesus to be his saviour. We don't know why he was taken quite early but, and Peter spared, but we do know they had nothing to fear in death. And let's be honest, our greatest fear is death. So when Jesus takes away our fear of death through the cross and at the tomb, what is there left to fear? some ridicule by some atheists, being rejected at work, being ostracised by the people that you love. The people who should be living in fear are those who will be thrown into hell after death. And friends, I don't want to scare you, but the truth is, if you're sitting here tonight and you're not yet saved, 
you need to ask yourself a very difficult question. If you died tonight, where will you be for eternity? Trust Jesus and you'll conquer your fear of death once and for all. Okay, so realising that our fear of death has been defeated at the cross, the first way of trusting Jesus is by trusting him with our lives. Now, the second way of trusting Jesus when, we're, when being persecuted is very simple. It's very simple, but it's incredibly important for us here at 645, especially when we want to help our brothers and sisters overseas who are being persecuted. Look with me at verse 5, verse 5 of Acts 12 again. Verse 5 tells us then when, that when Peter is in jail, that prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. The, pray, the church is praying to God on behalf of Peter. So what are we supposed to do? Pray. It sounds simple, but prayer asks Jesus to intervene because we are so powerless and he is so powerful Herod uses spears and swords and we as Christians use prayer because we're not just involved in a physical battle but we're involved in a spiritual battle and we should rejoice. We're on the winning side. We've got the superpower of all superpowers. And how should the Christians pray in verse 5? Earnestly. Earnestly. Now this means with sincerity or effort. It's the same term used to describe Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, him praying before he is arrested and taken away. We pray with sincerity and real effort like Jesus. Our prayers aren't meant to be wishy-washy. They're not soap bubbles that drift up into the sky and we think that God will, you know, poke one, pop one with his finger. We pray as if we were in the very throne room of the Lord God Almighty, our knees bent, our faces to the ground and our hearts bursting with our hearts fully entrusted to his power, majesty and supremacy. As my favourite commentator from the Blue Letter Bible writes, earnest prayer has power not because it in itself persuades a reluctant God. Instead, it demonstrates that our heart cares passionately about the things God cares about. That's why corporate prayer plays such a vital role in churches and indeed here at Church by the Bridge. Together we all come before the throne of grace of Jesus and together we say, Lord, save your brothers and sisters from persecution. We love them as you love them. It's why we need to come to prayer meetings like this Tuesday and Wednesday night. Don't see it as just an interruption to watching another show of Madam Secretary or MasterChef or NCIS Dubbo. But see it more as a war room that is taking the fight right into enemy territory. It's a war room. And when we're outside of church hours, we ourselves need to pray for the persecuted. If you see news about about Christians anywhere over the world being persecuted, pray. If you get an email from a church organisation about persecution, pray. If you hear one of the brothers and sisters here tonight who is being persecuted or having a hard time, or even our kids from Kids Church being bullied because they're Christians, you pray, pray and pray. There is someone somewhere right near now who needs our prayers. 
And if you think there's too much persecution in the world to pray about, you're right. There is. And my, my suggestion would be pick one country and pray about it for a whole year. Iraq, Iran, North Korea, North Vietnam, Syria, Israel, Palestine, you name them. And make sure you pray earnestly and trust in the power of Jesus. Praying earnestly without trust is like driving a Lamborghini with the engine of a Hyundai Getz. Sure, it'll help you to get where you really want to be, but you won't be able to tap into the full power and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he is capable of doing. And this is the lesson from the comical scene involving the Christians inside Mary's house in verses 12 to 17. Our newly freed apostle Peter arrives and the servant Rhoda is ecstatic that the prayers have been answered. In her absolute joy, she leaves him locked out in the street, out in the danger of being discovered again, while she goes and tells the others. But do the others rejoice at the great news? No. Verse 15. They call her crazy. They're completely sceptical. They prayed earnestly, but they didn't trust in the power of Jesus. And the challenge, I reckon, tonight for us is that we're not going to be like that here at 6.45. When our persecuted brothers and sisters overseas are sitting in a cold, filthy jail, when their faith is low and their health is deteriorating, we are not going to be silent. We are going to pray, pray earnestly, and praying in the, in the power and sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to pray that Jesus comforts them, restores them and tears down the walls of those prisons. To finish up, friends, we are lambs living among lions. Persecution is real and you need to make a, fight, make a decision. Do you let the fear of men rule your life or Jesus rule your life. And if you do trust Jesus, if you accept that he is sovereign, even in persecution, then trust him with your life and trust him with your prayers. And that's a good moment to say, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. We come to before you as a faithful people, a people who do have hearts for the broken and the lost, but also the persecuted. We pray, Lord, that uh, we do not fear men, that they do not fear men, that none of us fear men, Lord. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you reach out, that you save those people, that you restore those people, and that you tear down the walls of prisons, Lord. We pray that they always trust in you, that we always trust in you, Lord Jesus, because you are supreme, you are majestic, you are holy, and you are powerful over all creation, now and forever. Amen.